0: And welcome to Never Lick the Spoon, the podcast from the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. I'm Isabella von Holstein and in this series I'm going to continue to bring you stories from the teeny tiny world of molecules and how they're being used to solve some of the big challenges facing our planet. I'm also going to highlight some of the inspiring people involved in science and technology across Imperial and further afield. episode, I talked to a team of scientists who are investigating a phenomenon which is all around us, how crystals form. Humans have been harvesting salt from seawater for millennia, and that's a crystallization process. You take a substance dissolved in a liquid, in this case sodium chloride, in water, let the solution evaporate, and crystals will form. Scientists know a lot about how to control this process. The slower the evaporation, the bigger the crystal, for example. In industry, this is used to make gemstones and silicon chips with particular shapes, sizes, hardness, colour, and so on. So it's a bit of a surprise to find a completely undiscovered phenomenon of a crystal healing itself, happening in crystals of paracetamol. Yes, I said healing itself. When I first saw a video of this phenomenon, my jaw dropped. So I spoke to Isha Bade, who captured the video, to find out what's going on.
1: Hello. I'm Isha. Um, I'm a second-year PhD student in the Chemical Engineering Department here at Imperial College London.
0: First of all, can you describe the weird phenomenon that's happening?
1: The video essentially captures this regeneration, self-healing. When you cut a crystal in half and, like, you hang it in a vial, in the solution that it's meant to grow in, the camera captures its regrowth process. So if you let it in solution and you just let it sit for a few weeks, then that broken crystal regrows back into its original shape. So just think of it as a kite shape and you break that kite shape in half. So you end up with two triangles. Now you let one of the triangles grow and then that triangle regrows back into the kite. It's just mad. One of the key aspects of this work is that we're working with really large centimeter scaled crystals and trying to see this phenomena on them. In industry, you would work on crystals that are like on micrometer scale. If you were to observe that phenomena on that size, all the kinetics that are happening, all the processes that are happening on the crystal, they're so fast because the crystal is so small. You could very easily miss this growth process. How can you tell what's happening at a fundamental scale if you can't see it? So that's the idea of growing really large crystals. So you're essentially slowing down all the processes that are happening on the crystal, and then you can capture it. We have observed this phenomenon in paracetamol, but my PhD also involves looking at other systems. So I have started growing crystals of uh, organic pharmaceuticals so ibuprofen aspirin especially when you're trying to look into a phenomenon that's not been reported before you at least want to be comfortable with the molecule because then at least there's a lot of thermodynamic data out there a lot of parameters and a lot of knowledge on the fundamentals of that molecule so that that's not something you have to worry about you can just worry about the new phenomenon that you have
0: Next, I spoke to Alison Arbour, who completed the IMSI-MRES course in molecular engineering this year, and whose six-month research project was on this crystal regeneration phenomenon. I asked her, why do you think no one has observed this before?
2: I I do think that's a really good question, because this is quite a fundamental phenomenon we're observing. I do think it probably relates to how rare internal cleavage planes are, which does seem to be the the crux of the issue a cleavage plane is a facet within a crystal that has a very low attachment energy so this means that it takes little energy to attach a molecule to that facet and so as a result typically we expect that these planes will grow very slowly because there's not a huge energetic driving force to attach the molecules to these facets we still don't really understand how crystals grow with an internal cleavage plane, which is probably the source of this.
0: Um, and, yeah, there just aren't many systems like this. So what aspect of this phenomenon did you investigate in your master's project? They first
2: discovered this self-healing phenomenon um, in ethanol. So I took that a bit further and said, I want to investigate the effect of solvent And different breakage planes. The solvent ethanol, it's a hydrogen bond donor and it's very polar. So I tested regrowth in acetone and THF so we could get polar but without hydrogen bonding and a non polar solvent. And then I also investigated different breakage planes because we wanted to see if you make a random cut in the crystal, will it still self heal or will we see some other behavior? So, how long does one of these experiments take? It depends on the size of the crystal. We were working with two size classes, three to five millimetre, um, which we were looking at under like a stereo microscope. And then there was about a seven millimetre class, which we were using the cameras on. So those are the ones in the videos. Typically, regrowth for a five millimetre crystal would take about a week. Um, with the larger crystals, it could be 10 days to 14 days. The interesting thing about crystals is you can grow a batch the exact same way, cleave them the same way, and then they'll all regrow slightly differently. So it's very frustrating. (laughs) These experiments take a while. So I would do a few hours every day and then do computational work for the rest of the time. So it was probably 50-50. And the computational work, how
0: does that uh, fit in?
2: I started working on molecular dynamics because we thought that would be a nice counterpart. The goal was we could try to model not just the lattice, but potentially um, different facets, solvation energies, um, use these models to collect some thermodynamic or energetic parameters
0: that might shed light on the issue. Finally, I went to talk to Jerry Heng, Professor of Particle Technology at Imperial, for his perspective on the discovery.
3: Isha and Alison have done quite a fair bit of work actually already. And these are painstaking, slow, long, tedious experiments which are laborious, a lot of patience. And what I'm really pleased is that it's not just me observing it uh, that many years ago during a PhD that it's actually reproducible now um, that that she's seen the same behavior and so has Isha seen the same behavior, right? Uh, If we think about pharmaceuticals, Almost all are purified or isolated using a crystallization step. I mean, you can imagine not only paracetamol, ibuprofen, aspirin, carbamazepine. I mean, you can think also of other sectors. For example, uh, the computer you're using has silicon wafers, and that's also a crystallization process. You can think about jewelry. So people think about sapphire or nice gemstones. That's also a crystallization process. Um, Food, sugar, salt. Even to energy storage, batteries, a lot of those electrodes are made of crystalline materials too. So I can imagine that, that the, the, the applications are wide ranging beyond pharmaceuticals.
0: So this is all pretty fundamental research. How is it useful to understand how some crystals under some conditions can regenerate?
3: Imperial is an amazing place to be at because we, we do cool stuff, but we also do cool stuff which has an impact, Right. And in this instance, I I can maybe describe two potential applications which are very relevant to industry, Uh, one of which is what is known as seeding. So in a batch or continuous crystallization process, what we normally do is we do seeding. Uh, Seeding means we add some of the particles so that the particles are going to grow. The particles we add in are often described by size and amount. Seeds, which are 10 microns, and they've got the native shape intact versus a particle which was maybe ground down to become 10 microns for seeding. They may expose very different faces. They may have been fractured along different planes. Whether it grows directly or whether it has to regenerate first then grows, I think will mean that we've got a better degree of control over our experiments. And that could lead to uh, better particle attributes, size distributions, or even potentially overcoming outcomes in polymorphic forms. Uh, That's one. The second is in the design of the crystallizer for us to understand the impact of our mechanical agitation, as an example. So if the reasons why we agitate it is to suspend the particles so that they continue to grow quickly enough. Uh, But if we were to break them, then we may change the modes um, of growth, regeneration or continued growth.
0: So Alison said she's been doing a mixture of experimental work and she was also doing some modelling. That's very modern, isn't it? You know, 50 years ago we wouldn't have done the modelling.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't have gone that far back. When I first started, I did not do much modelling at all. I'm an experimentalist, you know, and experiments are true and real. I think we're at a point now that modelling is also more accessible. I'm not a modeller like Nick Harrison or, you know, others who will be developing the codes, solutions, the models for it. I'm a user, but I do believe that we need to use both because experiments do guide and inform modeling. At the same time, modeling does guide and inform experiments. So it's a win win situation if we combine some degree of experiments and modeling. It accelerates discoveries or progress in the work. And it also helps in understanding what's happening. So, yes, we, we use a range of modelling tools from the molecular modelling uh, through to process modelling. So when I mentioned about seeding and the uh, breakage phenomena, we don't develop the optimization codes for those, but we use them to describe uh, our crystallisation process.
0: Combining perspectives is also interesting to Isha and Allison.
1: As an engineer, my first instinct is, oh, I've seen this phenomena on a single crystal. How is it going to impact on an industrial scale? How is it going to translate on a reactor that's operating 100 litres or whatever? How is flow going to affect it? It's, It's all like scale up. Whereas when you talk to people from chemistry or like someone with a pharmacy background, they are more like, why is this happening? They would go on the more molecular side of things and be like, oh, what if we try a different system? What if we try to cut it a different way? And it's amazing because at the end of the day, you want to combine it together. One is incomplete without the other.
2: Well, I always wanted to do computational work. That's my focus. But I also I did like the fact that, of course, there are experiments. And typically when you do see computational projects, they're, they're often in isolation and they, they can be very theoretical, which is interesting from a theoretical sense. But I also like the idea of ideally you want to do computations that reflect
0: reality. And that's the, the goal of this project, really. And this collaborative instinct goes beyond working with people from other disciplines within Imperial. All the students on the Molecular Engineering MRes course do a research project in collaboration with industry.
2: We've been working with the crystal shape control group at BASF, which has been a really interesting facet of the project as well. Um, and so the whole group's devoted to basically understanding how we can and how manufacturers can control of habits of crystals when they're doing batch crystallization procedures there is a hope that if we can understand crystallization better even in some kind of unique way any type of fundamental understanding we can have would help further down the line with manufacturing implications i felt with a course like mc because it is multidisciplinary as they say <laughs> it would be a good chance for me to learn about some different fields and, and for instance a material science program I'm going into, that's something I probably would not have considered otherwise. So it was a good chance for me to learn about about different research and just meet different people and hear about what's going on.
3: I think we're very fortunate again at to work with Talent, both Isha in this project with Alison, Very independent. They're the very smart students, too hardworking at the same time. So I think we're very fortunate in Peru, that's our best asset. I should also say INZ is a fantastic institute because it enables this sort of cross discipline uh, interactions. So Nick and I wouldn't I wouldn't have known Nick if not for INZ. Such kind of institutions that in Peru facilitates facilities department inter faculty in this instance collaborations which gives different dimensions and only serves to progress the work further and faster.
0: Thank you to Isha Bade, Alison Arbour and Jerry Heng for talking to me about their project. In their interviews, they mentioned their collaborator, Nick Harrison, who is Chair of Computational Materials Science at Imperial and, coincidentally, one of IMSI's co-directors. So this is one episode where the podcast audio format isn't ideal. I wish I could show you that video. Seeing a crystal grow back into the shape it was before it was broken is really mind-blowing. Did you know that crystallization processes were so important in industry? What do you think about the fact that we are still discovering fundamental molecular behaviors that we didn't know existed? Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at imperial underscore or email us at imsi imperial.ac.uk. Until next time, take care and remember, never lick the spoon.